<laughs> we have this treasure in earthen vessels, says our says St. Paul. Okay, let's move on a little bit to the story here. So, um, so nobody knows what Jesus is doing. Our friend Lazarus sleeps by go that I may wake him. And then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. Because every verse here has a misunderstanding. Oh, he'll get up. He's, he's, you, know, you don't need to go all the way to Jerusalem just to wake him up. You know, because they're thinking they're afraid. They don't want to go to Jerusalem. You know, it's dangerous there. Verse 13, however, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. So Jesus is just dealing with this misunderstanding and uh, all around him. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. So this is a, a, a sign. What's going to happen is a sign so they will see uh, who Jesus really is. And he's, so he, that's why he waited for their sake. Then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. So he's still thinking about the danger, the opposition. And so they're ready to go up and store, you know, have a fight, and, and he doesn't also get what is happening. So when Jesus came, he found he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Mary and Martha to comfort them concerning their brother. Now, in John's Gospel, we've mentioned that this title, the Jews, is kind of a pejorative way of describing the Jewish leadership or just the Jewish people in their opposition to God. Of course, everyone in the story is Jewish, so there's no Jews and other people. Um, but as we look at the reactions from, from the group that, that, that John is describing, Jesus calling, that John is calling the Jews, we'll see that, that sort of range of, of agnosticism or rejection of Jesus. So that these people around Mary and Martha aren't necessarily disciples. Verse 20. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went out and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. You, you get this Mary-Martha connection in, in this in the old story because Martha is sad, but she still wants to do something. <laughs> she had to go out and see if we can't. She's going to meet him and, hey, I know you can do the, you get, you know, and, and Mary is just being a little more of contemplative soul. It's just sad. She's sitting in the sadness. And she's so sad, she's not going to run out. She is probably disappointed. Martha's disappointed, but she's still going to try to anxiously control the situation. I mean, the, the, the cemetery would have been on the outskirts of the town, so I, I, I don't, 
I, I haven't looked to, to know if the ancient Bethany cemetery is still unearthed or excavated or so tell us. Oh, yeah, 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 that's it. Yeah, yeah, it took it too. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's like the garden tomb of Jesus, where it's like, yeah, the garden tomb may not actually be, but it looks a lot like this. There's a lot of that when you go around Israel, a lot of legacy. It may not actually be, but, you know, it probably looked like this, which is probably right. It's like the Mount of the Beatitudes. Here's the Mount of the Beatitudes. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Ask a question. Yes, Ed. Um, you asked earlier uh, how come, you know, he didn't get that when, when the sister said that Lazarus was sick and Jesus didn't give the answer that they were hoping for, that, you know, that, that they would just, he would just go ahead and cure them. Is it possible that Jesus, you know, waited? He knew that he was going to die, and he waited so that uh, you know, back in Satan, it would be a, have a larger effect on people? So, so, so he, so he waited for, for I, didn't, I didn't get that, Ed, the last part. So, uh, he was there. Talk in your microphone because you're muffled and you're not clear. I don't have a mic. Well, just get um, your screen. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so uh, when he was there at first, and they said that, you know, Lazarus was sick, he didn't cure him right away but left. And then when uh, he, he waited, and then when Lazarus died, he came back. Is it possible that he knew that Lazarus was going to die? Yes, the, the text says that. Yes, the text says he he waited for him to die because he knew he was going to raise him, not merely heal him. That's right. He waited on purpose. Yes. Okay. I just wanted to be sure I understood that correctly. Thank you. So Mar Martha, as soon as she heard Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary's sitting in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, "Lord." If you had been here, my mother, my brother would not have died. But so Mary is in the house with that first sentence. If he'd been here, he wouldn't have died. I'm sad. But Martha says, but even now I know that whatever you ask God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Now, this makes it this shows us that the resurrection on the last day was a Jewish hope rooted in what Jewish people believe, not something made up by Christians. But it was fulfilled by Jesus, not, not created. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. That parallelism has nuance to it. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, Though he may die, he shall live. There'll be a resurrection. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. There's also a reality of a life in Christ that doesn't end with death. This is our verse we chant at a requiem. These are the opening verses for a, for a funeral that we use to chant to uh, music, choirs, and chants. He says, do you believe this? 
She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of, of God, who is to come to the world. So, that means she has life. Because she lives and believes in it. Verse 28, when he had, she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, the teacher has come and is calling for you. So Jesus knows how sad Mary is and wants to personally, he cares enough about her, even though he knows he's going to solve the problem in a big way. There's enough personal concern. You know, it, it's a lot of times pastoral connection, relational connection is not about solving a problem. It's, I know you're hurt. I know you don't understand what I'm doing, but I'm, so I'm calling for you because I want to talk to you. And it's just being with somebody without solving the problem, without anything, just being aware of what, of what, they, uh, what they're going through. He's so relational. Very much. And he, he called for her because he didn't want to go see her in the midst of the home of with other people there and all the skeptics, you know, saying all the things they're going to say. So uh, Mary uh, called her sister and said, the teacher's come is calling for you. And as soon as she heard that, she rose quickly and came to him. She was upset, but, but she obeyed the word of Jesus. Okay, I'll come. Because you, know, you can say, if you're just playing with someone, no. You didn't do what I want. I'm not coming. And we can even in our prayer say, oh, well, God didn't give me that. I'm just going to stew and be, be mad. Sometimes we like our anger. I'm disappointed. I'm angry about it. And I'd rather be angry than, than minister to. <laughs> I'd rather be angry than healed. <laughs> That's a real human thing. You're going to hide. You're going to start to dump the eye through the yeah. We can also be. We can meet people in our anger by not responding to it. By by uh, and the real human problems. People get angry. We take it personally and we get angry at them. But if we, this is why in ministry it's very hard to do, especially. The closer it is, like in your family, the harder it is. The more you get away, the easier it is. Oh, yeah, with your family. Oh, yeah. It's all me. But in a place of our anxiety, that's where we're like, what? You know, cause we, because we depend we upon that affirmation. So, but, but, but we can learn there even. This is, this is the family growth, is to not take others personally. So when they're angry, if we can duck, let it hit the wall, <laughs> And come back and, and, and just say, you know, I see you, you're angry. Yeah. And let them, because th part of this is um, a small digression here. I want to continue on the text. It's a, um, but anger is something that we experience that legitimately surfaces something within ourselves. So it, it ought not to be forbidden. Obviously, it can't be allowed to um, be destructive. You know, if I'm angry, I start breaking everything in the house. Okay, that's not okay. So we have to learn. But if someone's angry, um, if we allow them to, 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 and we can say, I see you're angry, if we can help them work through it, 
they, they will probably, as they return back to a more regulated state, they'll probably be able to say, yeah, that they, they can be reflective about it. Maybe it could maybe even become a means of some growth. But if we take it on, what do you mean? I didn't do that. Yeah, you can. Well, I was sort of a clash of the wills. And now rather than letting someone sit in their legitimate experience of something and work through what it meant for them, we've now turned it into a, a, a contest. We're each going to lock down. This happens a lot in, in families and churches and relationships where fights, we think it's about some issue. It's not. It's that nobody, it's we don't, didn't, weren't able to respect with the other and let them be, let their experience be them. And we took them personally. We have a fight. And what it really is is you don't, you know, I, I need something from you you're not giving me. So I'm going to yell at you till you give it. Or I'm going to be passive aggressive until you give it. And letting go of people, like if somebody responds maybe to something you thought would happen one way and they get angry, you know, if we can grow to the point where, okay, you, you, if you're giving something, you should give it because you want to give it. And if, and if people respond a certain way, we could ask, well, you're angry, what's that about? What, why, what, what does that, what is that, why are you angry? And that gives them space to kind of work through that. And that's why we have to give people some space in our lives. We're so, instead we'll say, you shouldn't be angry. Well, whether I should or shouldn't be, whether I should or shouldn't be, I am. So, so I, health, healthy emotionality embraces that. Says, yeah, we no, we're not going to allow you to destroy the, the house, but we're not going to tell you you can't be deal with that. And and we're not going to. And the less anxiously we can react to that, the more we give someone a, a, a place to process and maybe come back and say, gosh, I kind of overreacted or something. Don't turn it into a, a, a battle of the wills or a contest. So, um, anyway. There's... I would think that if under that circumstance, the person that you were talking about that was angry, that you it would depend upon the relationship. In other words, so I think in some cases, our relationship with somebody, sometimes someone's angry is best, I'm just going to go, I'm going to go away. This is, you know, in close ones like marriages, sometimes it's best just to like, I see, <laughs> but other people I know, I see angry, yeah, you look like very angry, and we have enough of a closeness of relationship that they'll feel comfortable saying, yeah, I'm pissed off about this. And so if I can, I only say that to someone who I had the kind of relationship with, we could sit down and unpack what that meant for them, but I had enough arm's length from it. I don't, but if I'm, if I'm taking on someone, oh, I see you're angry. You know, like, like stoking the fire and getting that, yeah, that's, it could be manipulative too. So we want to think about, I, I, the main thing we want to do is, is if people need some space, give them some space. If they need some presence, give them some presence and the discernment to know what we would do ideally. Sometimes when people are at great loss, they'll, they'll say, I'm so angry about this, you know, because it's just a So you can just, yeah, that's right, they're just scared. Yeah. So, all right, let's, let's move on a little bit with Mary and Martha here. So as soon as she heard that, she came quickly. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. 
Tushish that bring Mary, you know, Mary to come meet me here. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, she's going to the tomb to weep there. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So notice the difference between her and Martha. Martha had a plan to how to move forward. Mary is just sad. Therefore, Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. This is the quint- There's a lot of dimensions to this um, groaning, but this is the quintessential human problem. Life ends in death. There's a sadness. And so, Jesus groaning identifies with it. Ultimately, only through the cross and resurrection can he ultimately deal with the reality of death to conquer it. But in this miracle of resurrection, he's going to give a sign that points to that ultimate answer. Because this groaning, again, you could say, well, why does this raise everyone from the dead? Because everyone will die again. Death to everywhere, <laughs> every day. You'd be continually raising everyone around the world and keeping, as, they, as, they, as they come back to life and die again, only by giving a life that, 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 um, that has conquered death and is beyond death in this problem of, of the human problem of, of groaning and, and mourning in the face of death be ultimately solved. They groaned in the spirit and was troubled. So he's going to provide a picture Still here. Question. Yes. I'm sorry. To, uh, can we go, go back one verse before? Because Martha and Mary said exactly same thing. But how is that Martha was considered someone who is trying to control things? Well, no, they didn't say exactly the same thing. The first verse was the same thing. Martha said, if you had been around, I would, have not, not, would not have died. But then in verse 22, she says, but even now I know you can fix it. Mary just said, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. So her, her, her isolated verse speaks of just sad emotionality, where Martha's got an action plan to deal with it. And there's your sort of active contemplative. And these Mary and Martha have been this, this contrast in the spiritual tradition for a long time. The, the models of the active and the contemplative lives. And, and some, that's why um, people relate to one or the other, and they're usually like fighting words, like you want to criticize Martha. Well, yeah, she, Mary was just sitting there. Why didn't she help her? Does that make sense, Yuri? Yeah, I, I guess it's because I always identify myself more t- uh, as Martha. So I always feel like, um, I guess, less less Christian or <laughs> I don't know. Well, no, I, 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 I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, what, what I what I say, we, we studied Luke's gospel last and we did the story of Mary and Martha. And the, 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 the essential thing about Martha for the, for the, for the doers is um, 
the problem of, of Martha, I mean, there's no problem with Martha here necessarily because it ends up with Jesus proclaiming the resurrection of life and, and after she believes, she says she does. So there's, there's no rebuke of Martha in this story that I can see. There's a personality contrast. And with, but back in the Mary Martha story where Martha's busy cooking and complains about Mary, there is a rebuke of, 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 of Martha. Not for cooking dinner, but for complaints. So those who are, have gifts of serving, the point is serve gladly, serve God with what you're doing. Don't complain about what someone else is doing. If someone else is in the other room and they're more contemplative and they've got something else going, but if you're always like, I'm busy, you're not helping me, that kind of thing, that's, that's, that's a defect. That's, that's, so be content with what you're doing and you're called to do. If you're not called to do it and you can't give it gladly, then don't do it and don't give it. But don't do it and then complain that someone else isn't doing it. That's where your anxiety is making you feel like you've got to do something, and then you're mad that everyone else doesn't feel the same way. Now, I've actually, I mean, to be honest, this is something I've, I've noticed in, in you know, because I actually sometimes feel like, okay, I've got to do this, and then if I do it, I'm mad that no one helped. I've caught myself saying, okay, don't, that's about you. But so now to say before I do it, it's like, I'm not going to do it. I need help with these three things. Can somebody help? If someone says, no, why don't we just leave it undone for now? So more emotional health, what am I willing to do? What am I not willing to do? And the serving gift, in order to do something freely and fully to give, you have to be able to not give. So sometimes in churches, we value the person who's going to do everything, run around busily doing everything, and they're doing everything, but they're unable to not do everything. And that's where it really breaks down. They get burned out. So I say to people, I, I, we, we depend as a church, I want to say this, upon people who do things. And if people can't feel a gift and a, and a talent and follow through on it consistently, faithfully, regularly, we're going to fall apart at the seams here. However, I want that to be what you feel called to do and do it, and I think that's how the body of Christ works. But when you get beyond your gift set and you say, maybe, maybe I'm called to, you know, I don't know, uh, you know, maybe someone's doing altar guild, and then they say, oh, there's some stuff in the kitchen I need to. Well, that's not your call. So it's, I'm not going to do that in the kitchen. I'm going to do this. Leave that in the table until someone comes along. So what your task is in discerning your gifts is, what am I called to do? And let me do that. And let me say no to everything that's not that. And then when I commit myself to something, I can be fully in with my heart. And if I catch myself being bitter about people who aren't helping, I catch myself. Or do I need to step back? Or maybe, you know, there can be an, a lack of health in an organization where a lot of people are under-functioning. And maybe you say, you know, I'm not willing to do this unless I get some other people to kind of pitch in. That's a healthy thing. So this is not a easy, it's a relational dynamic, but for the giver, just make sure that what you do, you freely want to do, and that if you don't feel called to do it, you're able to not do it. That's all. So verse 34, he said, where have you laid him? It said to the Lord, come and see, and Jesus wept. This is Jesus connecting with the human condition. 
understand the sadness. And this is certainly a motivation, you know, for the cross. He's identifying with us. That's why he dies for us. He is human with us, and therefore he is giving his life for us. And this miracle of Lazarus is not enough. We need more than that, but it points to it. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. Some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? You always get those. Then, then Jesus, again, groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, guess <laughs> plan again, sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there's a stench. You've been dead four days. Martha was making sure that Jesus hadn't forgotten something. <laughs> a perpetual temptation of the task-oriented to make sure. I see you're doing this, but can I help you with that a little bit? Because I think you might have skipped a step. Jesus said, Do not I say to you that if you were, would believe, you would see the glory of God. There was trust in Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, they may believe that you sent me. Now when he has said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out, bound hand and foot, with grave cloths, and his face was wrapped with cloth. And they said to him, loose him and let him go. Now, what I want you to say, see here, this is a sign. It's a sign of Jesus' power over death. He speaks the word, he speaks the word, and the dead comes to life. It's a sign, even a picture of the resurrection, because what the scriptures say is in the last day when the, the Lord will appear, and Thessalonians says, with a cry of command. And if we think of a universal command from the Lord of the world to all the dead, rise. And because he's the Lord of life, they all must rise and appear. Matthew 25 fashion. And the Son of Man comes in his glory with all the angels who sit on his throne and all nations be brought before him. John talks about a dual resurrection, chapter 5. You know, uh, the, the, the hour is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of, of life and those done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. This is an, an image, come forth, that he will issue to, to, the, to the dead, all of the dead at the end of time. The many of the Jews who had come to Mary had seen the things Jesus did believe in him. Don't just get the dead raised every day. And waiting four days accentuates it. No idea that he just kind of got knocked out for a little while, could have been unconscious. I wonder if he did stink. Brave Klaus couldn't have been, but maybe, yeah, who knows that. 
But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus did. Now, this is the interesting, you know, the rest of this is the reaction of the leadership. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, what shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now, we know that, of course, this for them means that they're more interested in temple and national identity than the will of God. It's a temptation to us, though, all of us, whatever we are deeply rooted in in this world, I don't care if it's a country, I don't care whatever it is, if that's more important to you than doing the will of God, this is the danger we run into. We can see what God is doing and we don't, we ignore it because we have something we want and we're going to pursue that. And this is what they've done with Jesus throughout. And yes, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin are culpable, but they reflect a tendency in human nature to reject what God is doing in favor of of the plan I have and what I want. So the Romans will come away and take away both our place and nation. The irony is that because they reject Jesus, the Romans will do both. It is the rejection of Jesus that seals the fate of Jerusalem and, and the nation. So it's a paradox, a lot of irony tremendous amount of irony in the words of Jesus and of the people in this in this um, passage. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Now, this he did not say in his own authority, but being a high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not only for the nation, but also that he would gather together in one, the children of God who were scattered abroad. So this is two levels of meaning that John has here. Caiaphas simply means, you don't understand. We're going to, let's kill this guy. And he can die. We don't have to suffer. He doesn't understand the deeper meaning that, yes, Jesus is going to die for the nation so that all who believe in him may live. And that's going to, that, that irony of meaning come, will come out more fully in, in the resurrection narrative. Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among Jews, went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim and there remained with his disciples. And the pastor of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the pastor to purify themselves. Then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think, that he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it, they might seize him. So you're, you're getting, a, you're getting the, the, the scene set for the Passover feast for the true Lamb of God to come into Jerusalem and to be offered up by the priests and the leaders for the nation in a tremendously ironic twist. 
they think is going to save the nation temporally and politically, but this actually saves those who believe in Jesus a different way. Right. That's right. This being whole, this, right. This is the setting this table for it. Because now the, the, the resurrection that he's the right raising of Lazarus in John's gospel is such a public and published miracle that the leadership would either have to acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah or they have this there's gonna be too much of a following, so they decide they have to kill him. To preserve what, what they've got going. Talk aside that, did, did you do that like like you would saw it in a vision or what? He, he unwittingly prophesied it, is what he would say. Um, this kind of irony occurs in some of the other gospels too. For example, um, in Mark's gospel, when um, Jesus is being tried by the by the Sanhedrin. Um, you know that somebody yells at him. You know uh, something like, you know, if you're the son of God, you know, prophecy now. And, and the minute he, he says that, uh, down below uh, the rooster the rooster crows. And and so the prophecy that Peter would deny him is prophesied. So these there's all the gospels are full of this ironic meaning. And in John's gospel, especially, that the overarching theme is that Jesus, as as the as the apparent victim, is ruling. He's in complete control, though he seems to be subject. The only thing I'd leave us with today is that's what the New Testament wants us to believe about His work in our lives. That even when we seem to be subject to things that we can't control, that because we're living in Christ, he remains Lord of that, and he is ruling through it, and will accomplish his will in our lives through all that we suffer. That's the theme. We'll pick up next time. Let's pray. Lord, bless us and keep us. Lord, make his face to shine upon us, be gracious unto us. Lord, lift up this countenance upon us. Give us peace this day and forever. Thank you all for being here. Elizabeth, Yuri, Christine, Ed, Michelle, Mimi, Ruth. Good to have you. Thank you. Thank you. It reminds me relational chapter. I never looked at it that way. It's like the, the contrast between his relationship with his disciples and then Pharisees is. It is so relational. Well, and even in that, also, I think we can we can meditate on our own lives of prayer, all these characters, because we are still Mary and Martha in the midst of 
I know you, you know, I'm sad, but hey, God, that, next time we come to prayer. But even now, you can fix it. And, and, and rather than getting that humility and we have people responding in a certain way, and we think we're fighting one battle, but uh, it's not the battle at all. And, uh, I think that's civilization. Good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah.